Well, good morning and welcome to worship this morning. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. So thankful for these guys and lady leading us in worship this morning. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. Whatever processes, thoughts, invitations you entertain to get here, we really do believe that God in his sovereignty and in his grace divinely directed your steps that you would be here this morning for such a time as this to hear our God communicate directly with you, to connect with you, and to convey something to you. And so that is our prayer all this week in preparation as we begin the Advent season. Well, kind of. (laughs) Kind of, sort of. It's a little bit weird and different this year because ordinarily the Sunday right after Thanksgiving begins formally on the church calendar the first Sunday of Advent, unless it's this Sunday. Since Christmas is on uh, Christmas Day is on a Monday, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, and so the first Sunday of Advent officially is next Sunday, December third. But we felt like, gosh, what if we paused our sermon series in First Corinthians temporarily? We'll pick that back up in January, and what if we go ahead and just kind of get a head start, a long on ramp into the Advent season? And so that's what we're going to do this morning, and I hope trust that all of you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday together. I know that probably not any of you did, but, it, you know, at least, at least it started off good, right? You had lots and lots of food. You've just now begun to get over all of the abundance of calories that you ingested, and, and maybe you're just now starting to kind of wake up from all of that, and there was all the extra family, and like Mike said, all the collisions of parenting systems that you got to experience and enjoy, all of those things. But I do love this time of the year. I do love to pause and to think through the season of Advent, of the coming of Christ. What C.S. Lewis said is the greatest of all miracles is the incarnation of Christ. All other miracles, signs, and wonders prepare for and point to the coming of Christ into our context. And despite all the other wonderful good things, there's fellowship, and there's food, and there's football, and there's family, and there's fat pants, and all the other things... Christ is come. And so much of our season tends to orbit around the pageantry of man. And don't get me wrong, I love the lights and I love the lore and the myth and I love all of the meals. But if we miss the promises of God because of the pageantry of man, we will have missed the incredible grace and the blessing that God has for us to really pause and key in on and emphasize this season. It's been said, because it's correct, and I agree with it, that the Bible is one great grand broadcast of the grace of God. From Genesis through to Revelation, it is one great nonstop bombardment of the grace of God, and that Christmas is the exclamation point. And so we're going to take these next five Sundays to talk about the amazing grace of our God using the Advent season, using the coming of Christ as that exclamation point. And we're going to do it in a little bit of a surprising way. Maybe not what we would typically study during the Christmas season, but Lord willing, we're going to do that for five Sundays here. On Christmas Eve, which is actually Sunday the 24th, we'll meet for our final morning, uh, one big family service at 1030. We will also meet together at 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve, for those who are willing and wanting. One big service, our candlelight service, will be in the Gospel of John. But for these five Sunday mornings, next week we'll light the Advent candle, we're going to be walking through the genealogy of Jesus 
See, most of us are familiar with the fact that Jesus comes into our mess. We get that. But many of us perhaps aren't really familiar with that Jesus comes from our mess. It's how we can really identify and assimilate and affiliate with our wreckage is that he comes from it. So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles with me for just a moment to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to hit these first six verses very briefly, and then we'll get into our topic for the morning. Our topic for the season, for the Advent season and the series, is surprising grace. We're going to see God do some things that we don't necessarily expect because he's not like us and we're not like him. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, it's the very first words of our New Testament, and it goes like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there's a little bit of a huh happening there. For any of you who are familiar at all with your Old Testament history and chronology and lineages, Abram is about 2,000 years before Jesus. David is about 1,000 years before Jesus. And so Matthew strangely puts them out of order. What's going on here? Well, we have to remember that each of the four gospel writers are writing for a specific purpose to a specific people. The gospel of Matthew is written by Matthew, who no, by the way, was not autistic. I love the chosen too, not autistic. Matthew is written to a Jewish readership to demonstrate and convey that Jesus is the king. He is the rightful king of Israel. He is the fulfillment of the promise and the covenant made to David. And so he starts off with the son of David because the son of David, the king of the line of Judah, the root of Jesse, was always supposed to be the one through whom all of the promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. God says to Abram in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, I will make you many nations and I will bless all of the nations through you. And we find out a thousand years later, the way he's going to do that is through a righteous king. So you start off and you realize Matthew's going, let me, let me tell you about this king, about this Jesus. God, I miss him. He was wonderful. He was so compassionate. He was kind. He was loving. He was patient. He was strong. He could get angry. He had the best sense of humor. He worked harder than anybody. We could never outpace him. He was funny and he was selfless. And I watched him die. But he's the one promised to David that will be the enactor of all of the things that were promised to Abraham. I know him. I miss him. I will see him again. Christ is come. Let me prove to you that he is who he said he was. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. And we have the patriarchs, and God will identify himself all through the Old Testament as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Loser, loser, and loser. And God never blushes, never winces, never flinches about that. He identifies with the people that he loves and came to save because of their desperate need of grace and mercy. It's always surprising. Jacob, the father of Judah, not of Reuben, the firstborn son, not of Joseph, the starborn son. No, no, no. Jacob, the father of Judah, through whom we are told in Genesis 49 as his final father's blessing, Jacob says the Messiah, the line, will come through you, Judah, the lion of Israel. It will come through you. 
And his brothers, just the other brothers, you know, Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, and yeah, the Dan, whatever. Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Oh, she's the first female in our genealogy. She's a woman. She's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. That's instructive and interesting. Jesus's kingly line includes Gentiles. Fascinating. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, another Canaanite, a Gentile from the oldest city in the world and a member of the oldest profession in the world. And she's in the line of Jesus, not how you would draw this up. But there's Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth, another Gentile, this time a Moabitess. She's from the hated nation of Moab that got its start because of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Ew, ew. Not only that, they were so vile, evil, wicked, and idolatrous that Yahweh bans them from his temple for generation after generation after generation after generation. And yet, in the line of Jesus comes this Moabites, this Gentile Canaanite named Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She doesn't even get named. Why? Because we're not just talking about a gross situation. We're talking about death and murder and betrayal. Into that mess, from that mess, comes the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And each one of those females in particular prepare us for some aspect, for some essence of who Jesus would come to be and who he will always be. In the story of Tamar, we see God preparing hearts for a Messiah, one who will come and be the presence, the iteration of God on earth. In the story of Rahab, we see the need and the coming of a conqueror. Oh, it's manifested in Joshua, but it's pointing us to Jesus, the one who will come and set the world to rights, who will obliterate all of the foul injustice, pain, misery, suffering, and death. We need a conqueror of righteousness. In Ruth, we see the need for a redeemer, someone who is willing to pay the price to buy people back from the slave market of their sin and shame and death. In Uriah's wife, or Bathsheba, we see the need we have for a king, and the government shall be on his shoulders when he literally, legally, and logistically reigns from Jerusalem. That points us to the coming of Christ and when he comes again. And finally, Mary. Mary points us to the Son. The loved one of God comes into our midst vulnerably, defenselessly, approachable, lovable, invites us in. The story of these five women set us up for our season theme, this surprising grace. And so our big idea for this series will be all five weeks that sin is no match for God's grace. You might've heard that in some other sermon series that we've preached here. That's right, because that's a biblical theme. It's a refrain that goes throughout. Sin is a huge deal. It is the biggest problem in all of the cosmos. The issue, the problem, the dysfunction, the whatever it is, the dysmorphia of, of lives is sin. 
And it's a big problem. But it is no match for God's grace. And these five stories, the moral of all of these stories is that morals don't save a single soul. We are never about behavior modification, trying to get someone to be slightly better than they were when they walked in. The moral is, is that there is no moral. Or if there is a moral, it's that morals don't save a single soul. In fact, immorality prepares you, positions you, postures you to be the recipient of God's surprising grace and mercy. So with all of that, I invite you to be confounded all over again, not by the pageantry of man, but by the promise of God. And if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. As you're turning to Genesis 38, I should point out, I'm well aware that 60 plus of our ladies at this campus and probably around all the campuses of Bethel just walked through all of this portion of Genesis and are now world-renowned scholars and experts in the book of Genesis and are eagerly awaiting me to slip up in the slightest. If and when I get something wrong about Genesis chapter 38, I eagerly invite your feedback. You can email me directly, mike at bethelbible.com. Email me that mike at bethelbible.com and you can tell me all the ways I have messed up. Can't wait. I am thrilled, however, that our ladies did walk through these passages. They are tough. We are in Genesis chapter 38. I'm gonna begin reading and then I'll have to kind of step back and set the stage just a little bit. Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. What in the world? Let me tell you what's going on with your Bible. Moses has led the children of Israel up and out of Egypt. They went down about 70 or so people, one extended family. They come out in millions and they plop down in the wilderness and Moses sets out to explain to them who God is, what he's like, what he's done, and therefore who they are. And so Moses writes the narrative of Torah, of the Pentateuch. He tells them about creation. He tells them about the flood narrative. He tells them about all the people gathering together at the Tower of Babel, shaking their fists at God, and how God scatters them. But then how God creates a new thing out of a no thing. He finds a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's modern-day Babylon who's 70-something years old with a barren wife, and they literally worship the moon and his father made idols for a living. Yeah, you, you're gonna start me a brand new nation. And the point is, you're gonna start a new nation that is the reflection of, the resemblance of righteousness right here. How'd they do? They went to Egypt almost immediately. But what turned out as a punishment of them being exiled into Egypt out of the land that God promised turned out to be a provision and a protection. That's where they swelled from 70-something people to millions of people because there was no intermarrying with the Egyptians at all, like none. Why? Well, it wasn't their choice. (laughs) The Egyptians hated the Hebrews. The Hebrews were hairy, they smelled strange, and they kept sheep. Ugh. And the Egyptians, well, they were slick and oiled up and they had eyeliner and they wore turquoise. So they would have fit right in downtown Tyler, Texas. (laughs) They did not like the Hebrews. And so they just sort of maintained their racial ethnic purity exactly as God had intended because he wanted a covenant community, a messianic people. They come up out of uh, Egypt into Israel and Moses begins to tell them who they are. And he tells them all about Father Abraham, how God had come to Abraham and promised him all of these things. He told them about Isaac and he told them about Jacob. And he starts to tell them about Joseph. And Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, we get his story. And then we get the rest of Joseph's story beginning in chapter 39. 
But right in the middle of it is this strange little insertion, this awkward interlude of chapter 38, and it's all about Judah. And it almost seems like, hey, Moses, did you drop a page in the wind and put it back in the wrong spot? What's going on? This is now about Joseph. No, it isn't. Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, puts this precisely where it is supposed to be. Here's what's going on. In chapter 37, you remember that Joseph was kind of the snot-nosed kid that was having dreams about his brothers and his mother and father, that he was superior to them, that they would all bow down to him. Quick sibling update. If you're having dreams like that, don't share it at dinner, right? Because they quickly hatch a plan to kill him. We don't like you having dreams where we all bow down to you. And so they decide they're gonna take him out and they're just gonna kill him. I mean, heck, we got other siblings. What's one gonna do? He wasn't even that hard of a worker. And so they're gonna try to kill him, but it is Reuben, the firstborn that says, no, no, let's not kill him. I mean, he is our brosif and all. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. Let's throw him in a cistern, these places that they had dug out of the limestone to hold water. Let's just throw him in there. We'll cover it up. We'll have lunch. He'll freak out. We'll just laugh and laugh and laugh. And so they do. They put him in a pit. They close it up. The text says he's literally in there screaming in horror and terror. But it's Judah who goes, hey, guys, 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 this is pretty rough. Let's not kill him. For what good would that do to us? Let's at least profit from his misery. Yes, sounds like a good brother, right? Let's profit. And they see a caravan of Midianites coming over the hill, and they pull Joseph out, and they sell him to these Midianites who take him to Egypt. And right there you think, well, that's it. The provision of God's Messiah must be broken. The line will be cut. It's over because Joseph is gone. Ah, God's got another plan, you see. So they've just sold their brother to the Midianite caravan who's taken him to Egypt. And about that time, it just so happened at that time, all that's just been going on, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. The Adulamites were Canaanites. They were idolaters. They practiced child sacrifice. They worshiped Chemosh and Molech. They were a depraved, dark, defiled people. Into that mess, Judah goes, hey, bro, let's be besties. And he hooks up with this guy named Hireh, and they become friends. Verse 2, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman, uh, the certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. That's actually the woman's father's name. We'll find out later. He took her and went into her. Judah was walking along. He goes to see his buddy Hirah. Sees a Canaanite woman and goes, Ow. that's in the text. Ow. Well, what's horrifying about that is Abraham had made his sons and his servants swear in Genesis 24 that no descendant of his would ever marry a Canaanite woman. Uh-oh, we're gonna have a problem. Judah sees a Canaanite woman and goes in to her and they are married. Is this because the Bible doesn't want there to be ethnic or or racial marriages? Not in all the case. God was protecting the sanctity of his worship. He knew that the Hebrews would have been defiled by Canaanite worship, and sure enough, it happened every single time. So Abram, Isaac, and Jacob had made them swear, do not marry the Canaanites. Judah goes in, and you're supposed to feel the tension mount. Uh Uh-oh, we're about to have an interruption. Joseph is in Egypt, and Judah, who's supposed to be the bearer of Messiah, has stepped off the course. Verse three, and she conceived and bore a son. Now that's a shocking grace. It shouldn't be, you think, oh no, God's not gonna honor that. Psalms and Proverbs makes it clear that conceiving children, specifically in those days, sons, was a blessing from God. Remember, this is antiquity. There's no healthcare system. There's no ambulances. There's no hospice care. There's no assisted living. Your sons were your legacy, how you were going to survive into your dotage. 
And so the fact that Judah is given a son right off the bat is a grace. It's amazing. She bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Just sounds indecisive, right? Like she goes, hey, what do you want to name this first? When he goes, Ur, she goes, good, that'll do. And so she wrote it down, Ur. It's a whole thing. It's a whole Hebrew name. It means something there. Verse four, she conceived again, what a grace, and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Verse five, yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelach. So three sons, what a surprising grace from this wreckage that Judah is making of his life. And then the text tells us, <laughs> uh, Judah was in Chetzib when she bore him. Now, why does the text tell us that? Because he wants us to know, Moses wants us to know, that he is right in the center and the den of Canaanite behavior. He is nowhere where he's supposed to be. He's way down in the south, way over to the east, in the midst of a Canaanite culture. Verse 6, clearly some time passes. After some time, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, or Tamar, as we say in East Texas. Tamar, it means date palm. Now, the text doesn't say explicitly, but she was almost certainly a Canaanite because that's where Judah was. There was no other Israelite people anywhere around there, and he's kind of friends with Abdullah, uh, Hira, the Abdullamite. And so almost certainly she's Canaanite. She's probably about 15 years old. That's how it was in those days. Uh, as soon as a young girl came of age, she was immediately given in marriage. And so Judah probably negotiates, works a deal, and she is given to um, his son Ur. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was Wicked in the sight of the Lord. That word wicked is only used two other times in the Old Testament. There's a special kind of evil. We're not told what it is. It's rah. It's just one little syllable, rah. And it's super evil. And every time anybody is said to be rah, they die. So we don't know what it is. We don't know what he did. But the idea is it was probably some level of violence against another human being, some use, misuse, or abuse of another human being, and God took great umbrage instantly. And so here's what happens. And the Lord put him to death. Oh, that, that went downhill in a hurry. We don't know what happened. Doesn't tell us what happened. I'd like to think that some AI-controlled alligator came out of space and just, or meteors just started like, we don't know. The point is, they knew that God did this. Whatever it was, it wasn't like someone went, mm, mm, maybe he just, up and died, as we say in the panhandle. No, he didn't just up and die. God killed him, and they all knew it. Somehow, we don't know. And so, it gets really weird really fast. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, the middle child, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Okay. Praise be to God, we have a much larger population, many, many more options these days. In those days... If a woman had a husband and he died before she had offspring, it was a death sentence. She had no way to sustain herself. She was basically going to be uh, destitute until dead. And so there was a custom and a culture, even before it's written down in Leviticus by Moses, called the Leveret Marriage, where the brother, the next in line, kind of like sports teams say, next man up, well, whoops, get in there, tiger, do your duty. You would go in and you would have a child with your former sister-in-law and that child that would be born would even take the name of the deceased to keep the lineage going because God wanted that to stay clear. So Onan, you're the next up. Get in there, second stringer. Raise up offsprings for your brothers. But Onan <laughs> knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would, uh, let's just say he didn't 
finish the job, okay? If you want more description and more conversation about that, again, I invite you, Mike at BethelBible.com. He'll come to your house. He'll explain it all to you. He'll bring snacks and some flannel board. We're just going to say, Onan didn't complete the task, okay? Read it for yourself. Enjoy it. Don't Google it. He also was using, misusing, and abusing his sister-in-law. And it is rah. Treating her as an object for his own gratification. I'm going to leave it at that. And let's watch what happens to him. And what he did was rah in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. So for those of you keeping score, that's two sons dead. At this point, Judah begins to see a pattern. goes, hmm, carry the one. That's two dead sons. I'm going to interrupt the pattern here, okay? So verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And then Moses gives us commentary, For he feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. It's really tragic. Moses has to explain what a dirtbag Judah is. He's blame shifting. It couldn't possibly be that this son and that son died because they were dirtbags. Could it, Judah? Oh, no, 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 no. They're, they're, they're my sons. They were good boys. No, apparently they were evil. They were wicked. And where did they get that learned behavior from Judah marrying into a Canaanite who was surrounded by a culture of wickedness and violence. Oh, it couldn't be my fault, could it? No, I'm Judah, I wouldn't. And so he blame shifts. He puts her away and he condemns her to a life of shame and mourning. She has to wear the widow's garb and she has to mourn until such time as Judah says, yeah, that's enough. It might be months, it was probably years. And so she's just completely damaged goods put away to not be used again. Well, the text is going to pick up some speed here. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of, Ju of Judah, Shua's daughter, she died. And when Judah was comforted, it means he went through the customary time of mourning. When he was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears and his friend Hirah the Abdulamite. <laughs> What's going on? That seems like a weird way to grieve. Like, oh, my wife's dead. I think I'll just go shear some seep. <laughs> well, no, there was an appropriate time of mourning. And then to go to the sheep shearers is kind of like in our day and age when certain men, not any of the men in this room, of course, but certain men, oh, let's call it November 1st, they go to the hunting camp. They go to the deer lease with their buddies and they load up their F-950 with a bunch of Yeti coolers and they just head out. Same idea. This is a bit of a euphemism for when the boys go sheep shearing, that's the boys going to the deer camp kind of idea. And he takes his old buddy, the Canaanite, Hira, and so they're going to go let their hair down a little bit. Here's how we know that. He took Hira, the Adulamite. Verse 13, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim. Okay. It's very, very short and very succinct here in our English translation. Enaim, well-known, was a temple of cult prostitution for the Canaanite gods. And this is where you would go, and you would engage in a fellowship meal, and you would engage with the temple prostitutes in hopes that the Canaanite gods would grant you fertility for your crops, for your family, for your economic dealings. And so apparently this is where Judah, the bearer of Messiah, is known to frequent, and Tamar knows this, this is where she decides she's going to catch him. 
she sets at the temp- at the entrance to Enaim, again, which is a temple, off the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Hey, Judah's a liar. He's well old enough now. I should have been handed off in marriage. I, this is my one shot. She's probably in her early 20s by now. You may be thinking early 20s. She's got plenty of time, not back then. Her clock is ticking. Her life is about to be completely over. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come, in to, let me come into you. Let me, let me come inside the, your, your little place here in the temple. Let me, let me visit. Like the worst pickup line of all time. It's never, I, but somehow it's gonna, it's gonna work here. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute for he, uh, she had covered her face. He turned and said, let me come in uh, to be with you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She had been married to two of his sons and she, he still did not know her voice. She said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're, we're, we're negotiating now. Welcome to Bethel. It's Christmas. We're negotiating a prostitution deal. All right, stick with me. It's in the text. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Smooth, fellas, smooth. I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, because she goes, oh, you'll give me a goat? Yeah, I'm not looking around. I'm not seeing a goat. What what goat? Where's your goat? And he goes, she goes, no, 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 that was you. Where's the goat? He goes, oh, I'm good for it. Trust me. And she's like, really? Jewish guy, you're good for it here at a Canaanite temple, seeing a prophet, you're good for, I should trust you. By the way, she also knows that he's a liar and a deceiver. Give me a pledge, she says. He's, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And you expect him to say, no way, that's my whole identity. So he gave them to her. (laughs) This is like saying, uh, give me your phone, your passport, your driver's license, and your pocket knife. Now, most of you guys would depart with the first three. The pocket knife, oh, no, uh Just give it to me. And he says, okay. So she asks for his signet, his cord, and his staff. Well, what's going on there? The signet was the little cylinder that was carved with his specific mark. That's how he would do business deals. He would take that signet and he would drip it in wax. And it was probably affixed to the cord that was his unique cord with his braiding and his color scheme. So if he lost a sheep, he could go and tie that sheep's feet together and leave it there while he got his other sheep. And everybody would know, oh, that's Judah's sheep. And his staff was also a uniquely marked staff that was his. And they were probably all connected. And he just hands it over, promising to send a goat. Now, if you and I were Hebrew readers, just as a quick side, this would be a great grand scandal. Because Hebrew literature always comes in threes. This is the third of a triplicate the third time that Jacob's family has been swindled by a goat. That's what our Bible's telling us. It's the third time that the promised seed of Abraham is going to get upended by a goat. You might remember, Jacob confuses and deceives his father Isaac by putting goat skin on his arms. And Isaac goes, yeah, you smell and look kind of goaty. Okay, yeah, you must be. And there's a great grand upending of God's intended purpose. And yet God is faithful. You might remember when the brothers took Joseph, they ripped off his coat of many colors as they sold him into slavery. They butchered a goat and they squirted goat blood on the coat and they said, Father, do you recognize this? Yes. And the father is undone. The family is undone by a goat in here for the third time. We're negotiating at a Canaanite temple with a prostitute for a goat. And the Hebrew reader says, there is no way, there is no way God can make good on this. It can't get any worse until it does. Stick with me. Here we go. 
Verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, give your signet and your cord and your staff and your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived. It is unbelievable the grace that he actually was able to conceive by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garment of her widowhood. She went back into her season of mourning. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, <laughs> don't you get it? Judah's like, hey, bro, I, I, I'm going to need a favor here. Um, I was at the place, you know the one. Yeah, I, uh, I promised a goat, but I didn't have a goat, so I gave her, like, my signet and my cord and my staff. And the Adulamite's like, you did what now? Well, where is it? Well, it's still with her. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. I'm going to need you to get that for me because I don't want to show back up. It'll be embarrassing. So he sends his buddy to cover his tracks. Unbelievable. Uh, verse 20, when Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has ever been here. <gasps> Maybe it was an angel. No, it wasn't. It was a trap, okay? It, so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has ever been there. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own. What? He is so focused on the flesh, he's not even thinking of his lineage and of his resources. Let him keep the things for her own. Or we shall be laughed at. Oh, we, he says to his now best friend, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. Oh, suddenly it's his fault. Do you see how Judah's always blame shifting? This guy, I'm telling you. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. That's the sweet sanitized version. Literally, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, is what it says there. She's played the harlot. Moreover, she is pregnant by harlotry or immorality. And Judah said, in English, bring her out and let her be burned. It's one of the most horrific verses in all of the Old Testament. It's just two Hebrew words. Yaretz saref. That's all he says. Your daughter-in-law's pregnant. Yaretz saref. You've heard of the seraphim, the burning ones. Yeah, saref, to burn. Bringer, burner. All of his self-revulsion, all of his shame, all of his self-anger, he now aims and weaponizes at her. The punishment for immorality or adultery in those days in Israel would have been stoning, which is a bad way to die. But burning is absolutely horrible, heinous, and inhumane. And he says, burn her. The last vestige of all of my problems are with her. Burn her. It's really frightening. It's really horrific. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, whoa, no trial, no questions, no clarifications. Apparently, his buddies and her brothers just comply and they're gonna bring her out for this. It's really awful. As she's bringing out, she sent word to the father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. As she's walking, she goes, oh, by the way, no, 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 no. That's not enough wood, boys. You're gonna need to make room for two because the man who made me pregnant and then, Beautifully, in Hebrew, she simply says two words. Hakar nah. She simply says, identify this. All she, he says, bring, burn. She says, 
identify this. It's like the greatest action movie response of all time. <laughs> identify this. And he says, Gulp. uh-oh, he knows he's been beaten. So watch what he says. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. He's not just saying she's nice or she's of better quality. It's a legal pronouncement, tzaddik. She wins. I'm the loser. She's in the right. I deserve to burn. They don't burn him, but she is more righteous than I, is what he says. Since I did not give her my son, Shalah, and he did not know her again. That means Judah never went into her again, but she is now going to behave and have the same rights as Judah's wife. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, because of course there were, because this can't get weirder until it does, because of course she's going to have a baby, but it's going to be twins. Oy vey. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Why? For the purpose of blessing. The firstborn gets all of the treats. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and passed on the outside. <laughs> his dude did a maneuver, and he went around. Like, I don't know that there's that much space in there, but this dude knows how to maneuver. He went around, the guy with the cord. This, this guy, you want to play rugby with this dude, all right? And, he, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. What a, probably a little bit more terrified than that. What a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called The Breach. It's a great nickname, his letter jacket, Breach. His name is Perez, which means The Breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Red because <laughs> he had a red thing on his red. What's happening? God is saying, I make promises they don't fail. I am faithful. My grace is surprising. It's a reenactment, as it were, of the birth of Jacob and Esau. You remember right as Jacob, right as Esau's being born, Jacob goes, yoink, I'll take that. And he's the grasper. He's the deceiver, the heel grabber. God's like, I'm going to get it done. No matter what mess you make, I will get done what I've promised to get done. The elder will serve the younger. You don't undo my doings with all of your dumbness. And that's the gospel. And it's very good news. So what do we take away from all of this mess here? Into which Christ comes, but astonishingly from which Christ comes. I'll remind you, our big idea, sin is no match for God's grace. And so couple quick implications and points from this. Number one, you don't have to sanitize the shepherd's cave. Many of us perhaps have pulled out our Christmas decorations and we've set out nativity scenes here and there and everywhere and we've dusted them off and they're nice and pretty and pink baby Jesus and all that. Let me just tell you, Jesus was laid in a shepherd's cave and they didn't have time for Joanna Gaines to put up any shiplap. It was wall-to-wall sheep squeezins. It was dark, it was dank, it was disgusting. And into that little pocket of fowl is laid the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at all the little shepherd's caves. Look at you, look at me. Look what I'm capable of in thought, word, and deed. And our world and our enemy and maybe even our flesh says, you've got to get yourself straight. You've got to get yourself all cleaned up. And then you can have a relationship with Jesus. False. 
He comes from our filth and into our filth, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords in that mess. And if you miss that at Christmas, good luck with your frosty blow-up doll in the front yard. You don't have to sanitize the shepherd's cave. This second member of the Godhead Trinity comes from our mess and into our mess to make us little Bethlehems, each and every one of us, how we are to look at ourselves, how we are to look at one another. Secondly, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Despite what we tell ourselves, despite what our enemy tells us, despite what the world system might tell us, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. There's enough of us in this room that I have to believe there are a lot of stories of heartache and failure and disappointment. Something has happened in all of our lives that just about nobody, I'm betting, is living the life that they dreamed of when they were seven. Something has gone amiss. Something has gone awry. And no matter what it is, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Whatever we imagined our lives to be probably has turned out different, and that's okay. Has sin made a mess? Yes, of course. But God is not in crisis. This text reminds us that his grace doesn't work like we do and that he stands ready to fold you in joy and purpose and he can still work good for your life. Remember, the moral of this story and all the ones we're gonna study is that morals don't save anybody. And frankly, immorality does not disqualify anybody from receiving God's grace. It merely prepares us. And so the third thing, this might sound familiar because it's such a wonderful master theme and a biblical refrain, do the next wise thing. Do the next wise thing. Or as my dad would say it, when you find yourself in a hole of sin, stop digging. That's what Judah kept doing. He just kept on digging. The Apostle Paul tells us one of these stocking stuffers. You like Christmas? You like Christmas pageantry? I'll give you one. Let me give you a stocking stuffer. We were just about to get here in our first Corinthians series. When we pause, we'll pick this back up in January. But this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I like stocking stuffers. You get pop rocks, you get pez, you get the indwelling spirit of the living God. When you think stocking stuffer this Christmas, think I'm the old ratty sock. I'm the old nasty stocking, indwelled by the very presence and the person of God. What a Christmas gift. You and I in this age, on this side of the cross, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, will never, by God's sovereignty, ever find ourselves in a situation where our only alternative is sin. Isn't that amazing? Your options might be hard. They might be painful. But you and I will never, because of the presence, the indwelling spirit of the living God, you will never find yourself where your only alternative is to sin. That's the greatest stocking stuffer ever. May your sock, your stocking of yourself, be filled, not with Pop Rocks and Pez dispensers, with the spirit of God himself. Sin, you see, is no match for God's grace. All these women that we're gonna be studying are preparing us for the first coming of Messiah and even more, his second coming. That Jesus is Messiah, the presence of God on earth. That he is a conqueror, the one who eradicates injustice and violence. He is the redeemer who buys us back from our sin and our shame and our death. The king who rules in righteousness while the government is on his shoulders and the son who is also our big brother. Now let's talk about Judah in closing. 
because the story continues in chapter 39. We're not going to read it. But Judah finds himself, after all of this, he finds himself down in Egypt, where he's dragged before the prime minister of Egypt. Oh, you know, Broseph, the guy who he, Judah, sold into slavery. The guy who had to endure years and years of prison in Egypt. I don't know what your worst day is. It probably did not involve an Egyptian prison. Joseph, however, because of what God has done, who take this horrible thing and remake it for glory and beauty. Joseph is in the number two position in the entire kingdom. And Judah is brought before him. You know, the text is very, very clear in chapter 39. Joseph says two words to Judah. Just two. In Hebrew, he just says, Hakernah identify this. And in an instant, Judah understands that God is faithful, that God is gracious, and that God can redeem the biggest mess. Identify this. And Judah weeps and he wails, and he is forever changed. Joseph says, I'm going to take your little brother, Benjamin. I'm going to keep him here in Egypt. You get out of here. Go back to the land of your father. And Judah says, no, not this time. My life for his Take me, keep me, let Benjamin go free. And we get those first flickers of Messiah. From our mess into our mess, even through our mess, God's grace is surprising. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for this unusual Advent passage. Thank you for showing us that you do not flinch or wince or blush at our situations, but you love us. You're grieved by our sin, and so you have made a way to divinely solve our human problem. And so, Father, I do pray, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that is merely trying to eke out a life in the way of the Canaanite, would they be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, would they believe and receive the gospel, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement that you did it. You redeemed us to yourself and to one another. And would they walk out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and experience Christmas, Advent, joy like never before. And for the rest of his Father, who have perhaps let our lives go on autopilot, and are caught up in the pageantry of men this Christmas season, would you remind us all over again of the gospel, the glory of your grace, and would we rise to effervescence of life, even in the mundane moments of our lives, knowing that you are good, you are for us, you see us, you love us, and there is no wasted moment. Father, we love you, we thank you for all these things, we pray all this in the power of your spirit, and in the name of Jesus, amen.